I'm sure you can already tell, but I am so grateful for the privilege we have of sending uh, Jay and Kate. Uh, we're a part of a global thing God is doing. And to be able to be involved in sending people where the name of Jesus hasn't really been experienced or heard. I, I'm just thankful. Thank you for your giving and your prayer. And, and may we continue to send, don't you think, to our own community and to the world. All right. Uh, as we begin this first Sunday of Advent, I have several grandchildren, you know. I have a um, four-year-old granddaughter named Riley. And Riley has always longed to line things up. Even before she could walk, she would take, and, and I think she would be a good engineering student at Caltech. She just likes to organize things. And she loves, instead of just dolls, she likes cars and trucks and planes and trains. So she always is just lining them up in these neat rows. And in fact, if you go to a toy store, I can always tell where Riley has been because she lines every, everything up. Well, a couple of years ago, Chris and I got for Riley uh, one of these little people nativity sets. Have you ever seen those? I, I put it up here, the one we got her. And she really loved it. But she did her usual thing. She took all of her dolls and animals and just any critter that she could find and lined them up around the nativity scene. You see, you see the picture. And then she always says, everybody wants to meet Jesus. Everybody wants to meet Jesus. I love it. But of course, I think true to life. Uh, when people might want to meet Jesus, there are enemies that have to be fought. And she has one in her own house, her one-year-old brother that she calls Destructo Baby. That's Brooks. That anytime he sees one of Riley's lines, she, he just he gets so excited and he goes after it and then rips it apart, kind, kind of like you see here. Well, you aren't going to remember anything of the sermon. You'll remember the pictures, won't you? But this Christmas season, I, I thought I would take... Riley's instinct seriously and I think she's basically right that everybody has some kind of an interest in Jesus who has heard about him and I think that's true here in Southern California too and so we want to talk about that even though I think some people have the strangest ideas about who Jesus is and I think sometimes even we who go to church a lot if somebody asks us simply to, to answer these two questions of the Christmas season who was Jesus and why did he come who was Jesus and why did he come that we might have a hard time giving them a good clear answer so I thought we should take time to think about that this Christmas season don't you think that would be important to do and I thought the very place we could go is to the Gospel of John did you know that there are at least seven times in the Gospel of John, where Jesus tells us specifically who he is, I am, and why he has come. Seven times at least he uses that phrase, I am. And so we're going to be looking at that whenever you come to church here at, at Lake. We're going to be looking at something that Jesus says about himself. So that in this world where people are singing all these songs, some of them actually about Jesus at Christmas season, we might be able to say this is who he is. And, and I want to start in the place that just seemed the most obvious for me to start was John chapter 8. Uh, Jay and Kate read a part of that. It, it is a great text. That, and, and the question that gives rise to what I want us to think about is found in John 8.53. In which there were a group of people a lot like us in some ways, I think. Because they were religious people. They weren't antagonistic to Jesus. A lot of people had already turned against Jesus. Not this group. They were said to, to believe uh, and yet, we're going to find out they didn't really know who he was. And at the end of this conversation, which has a lot of conflict to it, 
They ask that simple question. Jesus, who do you think you are? Now, that that could be a very honest, sincere question, couldn't it? Who do you think you are? An openness to find out what Jesus might say. Or it might be more like the way my mom, when my brother and I would defy her authority, she would turn to us and say, who do you think you are? Anybody ever have that happen in your home? Well, we're going to find that the way they asked that question was much like that second one. They were angry. They were angry with Jesus. Who do you think you are? And to that, Jesus gives this incredibly profound answer. Uh, Before Abraham was, I am. All right, so here's what we're going to do. The organization of this is so simple. Number one, we're going to see what Jesus thought. Who did Jesus think he was? Then we're going to look back and see those people around him, religious people, who did they think he was? And then my third point is going to be, can you imagine? You know, I always turn it back to us. Who do we and who do you think he is? And I pray that we'll get clarity about this and that we'll grow to love him and know him more. So let's start. Who did Jesus think he was? What leads up to Jesus saying this, I am? is a conversation in which he made a couple of claims about what he can do. So he has a couple of claims, I can do this, and then he tells us his identity, I am. So what does he say? First, he claimed to be the person who can set people free. That he can set people free. Look at verses 31 and 32 of John chapter 8. So to the Jews, and notice, who had believed him, to the ones who believed him, not to those who'd rejected, Jesus said... If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Now, when you hear this, somebody making this claim. If you hold to my teaching, I'll set you free. I'm the truth. I will set you free. You know what that implies, don't you? It means that apart from him, we're not free. That we're bound. And I'm telling you, the listeners to this, who are very faithful followers of Yahweh, they bristled at this. And and they said something like this. What are you talking about, Jesus? We are Abraham's children. We have never been slaves. Now, anybody who's gone to church or read the Bible very much, you wonder about that response because the people of Israel had often been slaves. On a number of occasions, they'd been slaves. So what are they talking about when they say to Jesus, we have never been slaves? I'll just tell you, they're talking about what people in the ancient Near East or Middle East often talked about. Um, I think of it more of an inner kind of slavery, a spiritual kind of bondage. This was a big part of what was talked about. The notion was that there's been a way that we've been created to live, that our Maedeker has made us to live in a certain way. But there's something that happens in our world that makes it so that even though we know that that's right, we almost feel this bondage to live this way instead. Do you know what I'm getting at? We we end up falling short of our own standards, much less God's. And and it feels like there's something else controlling. It feels like a bondage. And so Jesus is saying, listen, I've come to set you free so so that you can live life the way you know it's supposed to be. The way that the Creator made us to live. Is this becoming clear for you? I've been trying to think of an illustration. It's a story I've told you about before, but it really fits here. 
when I when I was a boy, we didn't have a whole lot of money uh, growing up in West Virginia. But I'll tell you, I love to play basketball and I had a basketball. Uh, West Virginia is the state of Jerry West, you know. So so I if you're not a sports fan anyway, <laughs> if you are, you know who he is. Jerry West, I would go out and pretend I was Jerry West and I would just shoot for hours. I tried to have that follow through just just like his. And and I would play hours upon hours. I was the only one in my family who liked basketball. And as we got to a Christmas season, I don't remember I was eight or nine or ten years old. I felt like the basketball was wearing out and I wanted a new one. But I knew I could tell my parents didn't think I needed a new one. All right. Um, My parents also at Christmas season would give us a certain amount of money that we could go out and buy Christmas presents for the for the family. And so uh, we did that. And that year I went out and bought uh, Christmas presents for the family. And I, I remember that my older brother, Chuck, when he opened up my gift to him, it was it was a basketball. <laughs> I'm telling you, I remember looking at my parents and they were so upset. <laughs> and I looked at my brother and he was so disappointed. You know how brothers can really get at their brothers. He just looked over at me and he said, great present, brother. And he flipped that thing over to me. I tell you, I felt terrible. I felt terrible. I, I went up to my room and I remember thinking, What's wrong with me? This wasn't just a last minute decision that I just did. You know, didn't just give it. I planned for this. I used the money for this. I went to buy it. I wrapped it. What's wrong with me? Why do I do such dumb things? Now, of course, it's so good for me as your pastor to be able to come up here and tell you I never have any problems with that. I never I never ask that anymore. What? All right. right. You don't believe you don't believe a word of it. That's what he's getting at. This thing about us where we know this is what I should do and I I don't do it. And and Jesus said, I've come to be able to forgive you of those places where you've gone wrong in the past. And I've come to come into your life to set you free so at last you can live. But as he spoke to the people in his day, like so many of us, they didn't want to acknowledge it. They, They want to say, who are you to say that we're the ones who are bound That might be true of the Gentiles out there. That might be true of these pagans out there. They're the ones who always are doing things wrong. But we have God's laws. We know how to live. We have God's word. We have this great spiritual heritage. As I think about it, I think most of us who go to church, can't you relate to them? Sometimes we see things wrong in our own world. And and we want to pretend we're not really a part of that. So there are all sorts of things wrong, but it's always those gangs out there, the people who aren't in church today. It's the sex and the the drugs and the rock and roll music or whatever it's been in our lifetime that everybody else out there gets into. And and Jesus just cuts through all that. He makes us see that every one of us needs a doctor. We need a physician. Remember when he said, I've come uh, to heal those who need a physician. That's all of us. That every one of us needs his power, we need his freedom, we need his forgiveness. And he claims to be the one who can set us free. So I put it this way. Essentially, Jesus was saying to the people, you may have God's laws, but you know you don't keep them perfectly. You may have God's word, but you know you don't obey it fully. You too need forgiveness and freedom. And I am... 
I am the only one who can give them to you. That's what Jesus claims to do. Second thing he claims to do is seen there in verse 51, another remarkable claim. And what she says, Verily, truly, I say to you, whoever obeys my word, and there it comes, will never see death. So he is claiming to be the one who can give us not only beginning really to live now, set us free to live, but a life that goes beyond even death itself. Eternal life. Trust me, he says, and I'm going to give you a life inside that can never separate you from God. Nothing in this world or outside this world will ever separate you from the love of God that comes when you place your faith in me. And I am the one who can do that. And the people bristled at that. What are you talking about? Even, even Abraham died. Even Abraham didn't give eternal life. Who are you to say such things? And at, look, look in verse 56. To that Jesus said, you need to know about Abraham and all the prophets that they longed to see what Jesus called my day. And Abraham and all of the Old Testament prophets, they kept talking about what was called the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. That when God would break into this world, he would bring a day in which eventually all evil will be judged and everything will be right. And you know what? Jesus has the audacity to call that my day. Do you see what he's claiming? He's saying he's the long-awaited rescuer of the world. Who even the worst that this world can throw at us cannot defeat him and us. Eternal life. So he claims to be able to do that. To set us free and to give us a life that can never be taken away. And then comes that big claim in verses 57 to 58. He claims to be one with the eternal God. Notice he doesn't just claim to be old, but eternal. Verse 57. Jesus, you are not yet 50 years old. And you say you have seen Abraham. And again, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He uses the highest, holiest, most sacred name of the eternal God. The name that most religious people wouldn't even say or write. Uh, he, He is claiming that you say that you are descendants of Abraham. I am the one who created Abraham. You say that Moses was your great rescuer and deliverer. The one that Moses met when God transformed his life. And he said, okay, I've got to go back. Who should I tell my people is sending me? And, And you heard it as Jay was reading it. Tell them, I am is in you. That is my name forever. When they hear it, they will know that is who I am. I am the I am. He's saying to those who had read the book of Isaiah, chapter 40 and on, where the I am is to come to provide rescue for all who will trust in him. That's who I am. He is claiming this enormous thing that in this world where we wonder, is God there? We believe he must be. Where do I find my identity? Why am I here? Why was I created? What is my purpose for being here? Jesus says, find me and you will know that I am the one who gives you all those things. That's who Jesus thought he was. Now, who did the people around him, those professing believers, 
Who did they think he was? Now, I have to send you back. I hope you'll read through the Gospel of John these days. You know we don't have time to do all of it. But if you go back to chapter 6, you'll see that these professing believers loved his miracles. Jesus called them signs. They loved the signs. When they came, they just wanted more and more signs. And that's the word that the Gospel of John uses. So we have signs here. There must be an exit sign. There's an exit sign. Do you see it? If there's a fire in here, a sign is a good thing. But it's what's good about it is it points you to something else, how to get out of here, right? But the sign itself points to something much bigger than itself. And so all of the miracles that Jesus did, his healings and his calming of the turbulent seas and the casting out of demons, were signs pointing to him. So they loved the miracles. But when he said, they point to me and you must surrender your life to me, they didn't love that at all. So as long as Jesus could be a wonder worker, could just give them what they wanted, then they liked him. And the other thing they really liked is uh, his teaching, some of it. In fact, in John chapter 8, the text we get to next week, he said, I am the light of the world. And in verse 30, it says that they believed that, believed him. So essentially, they really liked the fact that he said, there's a lot of darkness in this world. And I am the light who can teach you how to live. Uh, So as long as it was good philosophy and good moral teaching, they really liked it. So as a miracle worker who could do good things for them, and as a good moral teacher, they were willing to believe. It's when he stepped in and said, I am the Lord of the universe that you should follow. That they became angry and called him demon-possessed. Now, again, I've been trying to think of how I could illustrate this, so bear with me here. Can you imagine if uh, over across the street at Fuller Seminary, uh, we were told that this very popular new uh, author who writes about spiritual things is going to be holding a lecture. So I go to Chris and I say, I want to hear that person. Uh, So we go over there and as we sit, the person is introduced, has written these books, and a lot of people really enjoy what he's doing. And that person stands up and says, let's not mince words. I am the truth of the world. I have never uh, been brought into being. I have always existed. In fact, I have personally brought everything in this universe into existence. And in fact, I have created you. And I alone can forgive you and set you free and find out why you are here. And more than that, your eternal destiny, whether you go to heaven or hell, is determined by what you do with me. And then sits down at the end of the speech. Now, Chris and I go home. Can you imagine me saying to her, wasn't that a great speech? Uh, Just so vivid. Great Great moral teaching, great principles for life. Not many jokes, but still, it was really good. Do you think I would say that? The answer is no. I would either say on one side, I believe he's telling the truth. And I'm going to follow him. Or else I would say, what a nut. This person has either deluded himself or he's worse, he's a deluder. He's like one of those cult people who is just out to destroy people's lives. 
I wouldn't just say, oh, it's just a great moral teacher. I really like it. I really like his philosophy and the things that he's done. No, no, no. I have to come to grips with, is he who he says he is or not? And that's what Jesus does in John chapter 8. He loves the people. He says they have to get off the fence. And it wasn't enough just to accept him as a miracle worker and as a moral teacher. They needed to respond to him as the Lord of their lives. And this brings me to a quote. I think every Christmas season I bring it in sometime. I'll bring it in again. Because C.S. Lewis um, wrote the book Mere Christianity. And as he looked at the world around him at Oxford University and at Cambridge University, he saw so many people wanting to be religious, like these people and like sometimes churchgoers here are, wanting to be religious and wanting to accept Jesus as a person who could do good things and teach good things. And he said, that's not who Jesus is. And in mere Christianity, I can never say this better. Look, this is what Lewis wrote. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people often say about Jesus, namely... I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, what Lewis was dealing with at Oxford, Cambridge, is what Jesus was dealing with in John 8. And don't you think we deal with that here in Southern California? Uh, People who want to like the sweet little Jesus when we sing the songs, who brings goodwill to all people. And And he is that and was that. But he is so much more than this. And I'll tell you, he became so firm. You can read through this text and see how firm he's become. And it's always raised questions when I've talked about this. Questions usually something like this. Pastor Greg, why is it that Jesus was so gentle and kind with people like lepers and prostitutes and even people like a tax collector and so firm with religious people like us? And do you know what my answer to that is? Because he loves us. People who have been trapped in drugs, people who have been caught in a way of life that they know is wrong, when Jesus says, I can forgive you, you need a physician, just run to Jesus and find hope in him. Too many times, those of us who have been long-time churchgoers, we kind of put on this facade and act like the problem is all out there. And Jesus loves us too much to leave us at a point where we can try to pretend that we don't desperately need his mercy and his grace and daily need his power if we're going to live the way he made us to live. That's not what the people wanted to think of Jesus. So they, they decided he was a blasphemer and tried to put him to death. That's who they thought he was. Maybe a good moral teacher, 
may be a miracle worker, but he's saying I'm more than that. So that brings me to the question that I have to ask us. Who do you think he is? If, if you have a sheet of paper, could you pull it out? Uh, I want you to start writing this down. Maybe through this Christmas season you can keep adding to it. What are your first thoughts when I put this up here for you? To me, Jesus is... All right, some of you may say, Pastor Greg, we, don't, we live in a paperless world. Uh, all right, you can go ahead and take out your phones and go in the memo section. I, you have them out already, so you might as well go ahead and use it for something useful. Um, to me, Jesus is. Now, as you begin thinking and praying about that, I want you to remember that those who were listening to him that day were not antagonistic toward him. They, they would have shown up at our 11 o'clock service. They, they were more like us. In, in verse 30, he said, I'm the light of the world, and they believed. Verse 31, it says they were professing belief in him, but it's clear that the Bible keeps telling us that just believing the right things in our heads, that that is not true saving faith. I mean, the devil believes the right things about Jesus, but isn't a follower of Jesus. You know that, right? So the big question I have is, if that's true, then how can I know if what I believe is, is genuine, rescuing, saving faith where I have a relationship with God? Do you ever wonder about that? And, and I feel like Jesus gives us, and I've called them checkpoints. He gives us some checkpoints that we can look at. And I want you to know that I don't want us to come to church to lake and, and be fooled into thinking that we belong to him when we're not walking with him at all. We don't love him at all. So in this, I'll just show you three checkpoints. Is, do I, have I really placed my faith in him? Number one, true faith is deeply dependent on Jesus. A few weeks ago, Pastor Walter talked about the parable of the seeds, and he talked about the seeds that just kind of hit on the top but didn't really sink in. We become deeply dependent upon Jesus. We trust him. I don't know if you notice, in, in contrast to the shallow faith of verses 30 and 31, later in verse 31, he says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And the word that is used for hold to is that thing that really goes deep. It's often a word that was used when people were in utter desperation. And we wonder, what do I hold to? Where do I find the teaching that can guide me? Where can I find the one who will never am, uh, abandon me? And Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, then you are really my disciples. So brothers and sisters, when those times come and we've just wanted a demand to sign ourselves and, and, and God is waiting for some reason. When those times come, when in your marriage or your family or your business or your, your, your home, things are so tough and you wonder where God is, and instead of abandoning Him, you hold to Him and say, where else do I turn? My faith is in you. You will know that your faith is real. Uh, Jeremiah wrote about it in Jeremiah 18 and 19, 19 and 20, in which at one time life was so hard, he just wanted to give up this faith in God. And he said, every time I try to do it, your word, your presence is in my life like a fire. I cannot give it up. And that's been my experience, too. Whether the death of that brother that I gave the basketball to by a drunk driver, whether the death of my second child, 
whether disappointments that come to us all in our lives, when we find ourselves saying, my trust is in you. I'll tell you, we know that that faith is real. Second checkpoint is seen down in, in verse 39. And I put it this way. Not only that trust, but true faith longs to obey Jesus. What, what Jesus said is, if you were really Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. Do you know what Abraham did? Do you know your Old Testament? All right, he was out there with his family, kind of as a nomadic person, and God breaks into his life and says, leave everything behind and go. Uh, Abraham didn't say, what's the social security plan? What, what are the benefits? He just obeyed, not even knowing where he was going. He obeyed. Later on, when God asked him to sacrifice his only son that he'd waited for so long, he didn't have to sacrifice his son. Hallelujah. But he was willing to obey. So the characteristic of Abraham was that when God spoke to him, he obeyed. And I find that the evidence of the one who is truly surrendered to Jesus is that we have a longing, a longing to obey. I mean, it will always be battled by destructo babies around us coming in to try to, to make it hard to do that. It does. We feel that, right? But you'll know it when that deepest longing of your heart, you come in and you say, this is what God says. Lord, with your help, I will obey. You'll know that you're a true follower of Jesus. And third, so simply, true faith loves Jesus. Look at verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me. Uh, I love that about my little four-year-old granddaughter. I wonder what she's going to be like 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. But right now she loves Jesus. She reads the stories about Jesus. When I go and I read them to her at night, she just wants to hear more stories about Jesus. We take the Bible story book out. What do you want me to read tonight? Read me one about Jesus. It's that love for Jesus. Now, eventually, it's got to mature. And, and Jesus would say in John 14, if you love me, you will, do you know, keep my commands. That when we love, we want to please the one we love, right? And when we, we have that love for Jesus, that makes it so that we so much want to please him. We'll know that that faith is real. Just hold on to those three words. Trust, even in challenging times. Uh, obedience or a longing for it, even when temptation is hard. And love for the Jesus who gave his life for us. Now we're going to be going to communion here in just a moment. Remember again that these people had not openly rejected Jesus. They weren't atheists. They were claim, the people who claimed to be with him. But what they didn't want to do was just surrender all that they were to him and say, whatever and wherever, Lord, we are yours. It made me think of, I just went to see the Steven Spielberg movie, Lincoln. I do recommend it to you. There are many sections that were so moving for me, but one of the parts that hit me about this was when the Southern, the Confederacy, the generals came up and they were going to try to negotiate a peace, as kind of a secret meeting with the Northern generals. They wanted to negotiate not as a group that was being defeated, not a surrender, but just toward of two sovereign nations who wouldn't fight anymore. And Lincoln sent through the generals, no, a surrender is a surrender, and they wouldn't accept that. Later they would come back again when they were truly defeated, and they would say, yes, now we will, we will surrender if, still the big if, 
if we can step back in and undo that 13th Amendment so that we don't do away with slavery. And our president with great courage said, no, a surrender is a surrender. We will respect you. But we're going to have a society that is better than one that has slavery. And in the same way, Jesus turns to us and says, I love you with an everlasting love. Uh, I am the one who made you. I know how I made you to live. You've walked away from me, but if you want to really live, I'll forgive you of the past. I will set you free and I will give myself to you. And when I give myself to you, the one who gives himself to you is the I am. And you will find him to be sufficient to his glory. Today, 